Bridge Bank helps breakthrough ideas actually break through and remains dedicated to providing financial solutions to the risk takers, the game changers, and the disruptors. Bridge Bank, a division of Western Alliance Bank. Bridge Bank, be bold, venture wisely. Hey there, this is Brittany Luce from NPR's It's Been a Minute. KQED's podcasts like The Bay, Bay Curious, Mind Shift, Right Nowish, and more all tell the stories of the Bay and beyond with reliable, human-centered journalism. They aim to inspire, make you think, entertain, and expand your understanding of the place you call home. Here's how you can support podcasting at KQED. Showing your support is easy, and you can join Brittany in supporting KQED Podcast too at donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. From KQED. From KQED in San Francisco, I'm Alexis Madrigal, and it is Housing Policy Day here on Forum. If I sound excited, it's because there's a lot of work to do here on housing in the state, and our state lawmakers are at least trying to do it. Unlike our federal legislature, bills can actually move through our chambers and become new laws. And this session, Governor Newsom signed more than 35 pieces of legislation intended to address a variety of problems in our housing system. We'll sort through them with State Assemblymember Buffy Wicks and a couple of housing policy pros. Did the state legislature do enough? When can we expect to see some results? That's all coming up next after this news. Welcome to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Truth be told, when it comes to housing here in the Bay Area, we are swimming against some powerful economic currents. There are a lot of high-paying jobs here, and it has been very, very difficult to build housing for many years. We may not have invented NIMBYism, but dang, it feels like we perfected it. Here's what an early 1980s housing activist said back then. If the primary purpose of land use policies is to make money for single family homeowners, then the land use policies of Palo Alto over the last decade are as close to perfection as mere mortals can hope to attain. If the primary purpose is to exclude all except the well off and a handful of highly subsidized from buying houses in the community, again, Palo Alto's policies receive high marks. And as it was in Palo Alto, so it has been across the whole Bay Area and for decades. So how do we get homes people can afford? Homes for people doing the many types of jobs that a city needs to survive, not just the wealthy, but people driving the recycling trucks, teaching the kids, doing elder care. Cities, especially in our politically fractured region, can't do it alone in Congress. Well, good luck there. So the state legislature, that's where our hope is. And we start off this morning with Assemblymember Buffy Wicks representing the Fighting 15th, the East Bay Shoreline from Oakland up to Hercules. Welcome, Assemblymember Wicks. Thanks for having me. So has something changed up in Sacramento? Like, it feels like there's a new kind of ethos and momentum behind doing more on housing. Well, you know, I think um, this issue has really metastasized into a crisis. And I can assure you that in addition to myself and my 79 other colleagues in the assembly, when we go home every weekend to our districts, we hear about housing and homelessness every single weekend, Mm -hmm. you know. And so it's an issue for everyone. 
for almost regardless of income at this point. Um, if you're older and more established and wealthier, your children, you want them to come home and raise their kids in which the communities they were raised and they can't afford it. And so they're going to other places. If you're lower income, obviously you're rent burdened and housing insecure um, are, are what we call sort of missing middle. The folks who are make too much money to afford um, subsidized housing, but can't afford current market rate. Um, and so it's hitting everyone. And so that's why I think there's more urgency because politically we have to act, you know, it's incumbent upon us keeping our jobs to act. Um, and so I think that's why there's just more energy around the idea that we have to build more housing. Yeah. So you authored or co-authored four bills. Um, maybe let's start out with AB 2011. Can you tell us what that bill is designed to do? Yeah, so what this bill does is it will jumpstart housing production and streamline a lot of the housing production that we know we need to get. We need to get to about 3.5 million homes here in California at all income levels, as I mentioned. And so this bill will allow for much needed streamlining. Um, it allows for what's called ministerial approval, um, which is a much smoother process to get approval to build housing. Um, and it also converts commercial um, land into residential, which right mm -hmm. now it's it's illegal to build residential on commercial in many parts of the state. Um, and, you know, we have a really an abundance of strip malls and office parks and parking lots um, that that we just don't necessarily need. People's consumer habits have changed. Um, and so with those vacant lands, let's put in um, housing, which we need. We have a real deficit of housing. So that's the, the main streamlining. And then what it also does is um, it provides um, important worker protections. It requires prevailing wage um, and, and healthcare uh, benefits and others so that the workers that are building the housing have the ability to actually afford housing themselves. Yeah. Um, and, you know, it, so it's a sort of a win-win in addition to the win that, you know, we also view this as part of how we reach our climate change goals. You know, housing and transportation policy is a significant way that we will, will reach our climate change goals. So you mentioned this number of how housing units you think we need, three and a half million. Is there a consensus on that number or is there considerable kind of variation in how many housing units different people across the state think we need? I mean, it's pretty well understood. Now, that, that number comes from McKinsey, that we need millions of homes. Um, and, and AB 2011, there was some data done uh, by Urban Footprint, um, which does research in this, and they found that this bill will allow for anywhere from 1.6 to 2.4 units potentially being built with it. Um, so hopefully this will have a significant impact. But there is definitely a need. There's specifically a need for very low income housing, mm -hmm. as we know. And for many of the folks that are experiencing homelessness, some of our, our unhoused folks, you know, they're going to need those wraparound services. So there's definitely sort of a behavioral health component for some of the folks that are experiencing homelessness. Um, but the bottom line is, you know, we believe and I believe in a housing first approach, which means we're not going to address those fundamental core issues unless you have a roof over your head. Uh, and it's incumbent upon all of our communities um, to allow for more housing, you know, and, and I say this as someone who lives in Rockridge, Rockridge needs to build more housing. Uh, and, and many other places like that. And many of our communities, I think of I've gotten better in terms of accepting that fact, um, but there are still communities that, you know, really reject housing. And that's why state action is critical. Yeah. You also uh, authored another bill that's supposed to make it easier to build affordable housing. So you're not just talking about it. It's AB 2334. Can you walk us through that one? Yeah, so so this bill allows for more what we call bonus density in, in very low miles traveled areas, meaning areas where there's a lot of public transportation. Let's allow for more bigger units um, of affordable housing in those areas where we have the transportation to absorb more population. We should be building more densely. And, and, and really all of this is around, both these bills are around 
building what we call infill development. So places where we already have a footprint, we already have, um, you know, we've already built up, let's build more densely there so that we're not building out into our open spaces, right? Um, and again, that goes back to the idea that we want to ensure that we're working towards our climate change goals. Mm-hmm. So I'm looking at a, a bill that you co-authored, AB 2653, and, and the, the setup here is, it feels to me like in a lot of current Sacramento and Bay Area politics, there's this kind of push and pull between the state trying to make all the cities in this region con- sort of contribute to reaching our housing goals, and a lot of those cities kind of kind of pushing back. Is 2653, that, it's a big piece of that. Well, you know, I, I think what you're kind of getting to is the underlying issue. You look at a place like uh, like Woodside um, on the peninsula and, you know, after SB9 was passed, they basically said, well, SB9, which which would allow for duplexes and triplexes on single family homes. They said, oh, it's not going to apply here because we are a mountain lion um, area, <laughs> you know, and this was like a sort of blatant, you know, I think most egregious, one of the more egregious cases of a city saying that state law is not going to apply here, um, that we're not going to densify. We're not even going to do what we call it sort of gentle density, which is sort of ADUs or, or duplexes or, or triplexes. And the bottom line is this goes back to the underlying issue that, you know, all of our communities need to be building. And, and I will say, you know, the, the governor and the enforcement agencies, HCD, which is the enforcement agency on housing here in California, they've really um, built up their enforcement mechanism. Um, they've started issuing letters directly to cities. You know, the governor took legal action against Huntington Beach. Um, you know, the attorney general has a, has a housing um, strike force. Um, where we're, where the state's really putting cities on notice to say, it is your responsibility. You know, we no longer is not in my backyard an okay response to housing. And that means housing at all income levels. And so that's what a lot of these bills are designed to do. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and, and, and going back to AB 2011, my bill, you know, it, it allows for, you know, um, bypassing CEQA, which is, I know, somewhat of a controversial topic. But what we've seen with CEQA is, and I'm a big believer in the the original intent of CEQA um, to ensure that California Environmental Quality Act, right? Yes. Yeah. The California Environmental Quality Act to make sure that we've done the assessments of the environmental impacts of more housing or any kind of development. I think that's a critical, important component. um, And that's the original intent of CEQA. But what we have seen is CEQA can be um, abused by certain individuals who don't want to build any housing in their communities. And so we have to figure out the right types of reforms there um, to allow for housing and to, to not have CEQA be used as a tool um, of NIMBYism. Yeah, right. And kind of anti-democratically. Yeah. Yes. Um, you know, in the past few years, there had been some kind of like big sweeping housing bills. And this year, uh, many of which did not, they did not pass. Um, this year, it feels a little bit more like a, a whole package of, of tweaks and, and different kinds of proposals. Do you feel like there was a the in the sort of your pro housing sort of caucus was that kind of an intentional approach to like okay we we should break this down into smaller pieces and go at it like this well i mean i think you know we we had some pretty big wins this year in addition to ab 2011 um my streamlining bill we also had assembly member laura friedman did a um, parking reform bill which basically said that new developments aren't required to have parking and parking adds a huge cost to development upwards of fifty thousand dollars per parking spot. Um, it also then sort of further enforces, you know, a society that is dependent on cars. Um, and she's the head of the transportation um, committee in the assembly. And so I think what these bills are designed to do is to really fundamentally, you know, reimagine what our cities can look like. Mm-hmm. You know, let's allow for more multifamily mixed income, you know, infill um, housing. 
let's invest in our public transportation to serve those communities. You know, and, and housing and transportation policy have to go um, hand in hand, and those best investments need to be made very intentionally. Um, but the bottom line is, you know, you, you started off with, you know, we didn't invent NIMBYism. I will say in Berkeley, that's where single family zoning was created, <laughs> you know, and, and you know, 100 years ago or so. Um, and so I think we do need to reimagine how, how our cities are. And, you know, the idea of building more infill, of investing in public transportation, of doing this with through an environmental lens, I think is important. And also an equity lens. You know, we're losing our communities of color. We're seeing these, these challenges. You know, 73% of single moms are, are rent burdened and facing housing insecurity. And there's, there's racial implications on this. There's gender implications on this. And so it is incumbent upon us to view our public policy through those lenses. So let's say 100% is we fixed housing in California. What percentage of the way are we there uh, in you know the last few years? How far do you think we've gone? Well, it's a really good question. I mean, I think you know we had some big shifts and momental uh, momentum this year, but it's going to take you know years to see the the outcome on that, right? Um, uh, you know, I, what I'm curious to see is giving all of these bills. What does that look like five, ten years from now? It's going to take time. Um, because it just does take time for a policy to be implemented. I mean, AB 2011 doesn't even go into effect until next July, you know, and then it takes a while for the permitting process and getting everything, you know, um, moving forward. But we still have some significant things to do. We fundamentally have underfunded affordable housing for decades. You know, the, Gavin Newsom has done a really good job over the last couple of years of putting money into affordable housing, but he has put more in than all other governors combined in the history of California, right? So, we have to have ongoing funding for affordable housing. That's something that you know myself and my colleagues I know are committed to. So I think that's it. That's one of the next big things we need to do is those sort of public investments for that. Mm-hmm. And then, as I mentioned before, too, you know, the investments in behavioral health for some of the folks experiencing homelessness is also critical. And those things go go hand in glove. And I do think we're going to need to do some more streamlining. So in terms of a hard percent. I mean, it's tough to say because we, we we haven't seen sort of the outcome of this, but there's still certainly more room to go here. Yeah. We're talking about California housing laws passed in 2022. We've been joined so far by Buffy Wick. She's a member of the California State Assembly, represents the 15th Assembly District, on the East Bay Shoreline from Oakland up to Hercules. Thank you so much for joining us, Assemblymember Wicks. Thank you for having me. We're going to keep talking housing laws when we come back from the break. I'm Alexis Madrigal. This is Forum. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We're talking about California housing laws 
passed in 2022. Earlier, we were joined by Assembly Member Buffy Wicks of uh, California's 15th. Now I want to welcome in two new guests. David Garcia is the policy director of the Turner Center for Housing Innovation at UC Berkeley, one of our go-tos on this topic. Welcome to the show, David. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Yeah. And Alfred Chu is an architect, housing activist, and commissioner for Berkeley Planning and Landmarks Commission. Also keeps an amazing list of housing legislation uh, through time. They're, uh, they're such an incredible resource on this topic. Thank you so much for joining us, Alfred. Thank you. Great to be here. Yeah. Should also note they're a candidate for the AC Transit Board, for what it's worth. Uh, and we would love to hear from you, too. What would you change about housing policy in California? And what housing programs or policies would you like to see more of in your backyard, in your community? Give us a call at 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. Or Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, or KQED Forum. And the email is forum at kqed.org. David Garcia, let's start with you. I want to play a little game called What's Your Favorite Piece of Housing Legislation Passed in 2022? (laughs) Um, uh, Let's start off there. My favorite game. um, Well, several of my favorite bills were already mentioned by the assembly member um, AB 2011 was was really significant. Uh, I don't, I don't want to, I think it's hard to overstate how, how important that bill will be. We did some work on this um, concept of allowing residential development on commercially zoned land. And we found that there's something like 57,000 acres uh, of, of land throughout the Bay Area that, uh, that is zoned commercial. And a lot of that land, as the assembly member mentioned, uh, is uh, is off limits to residential. So, so her legislation could be really significant on that front. Um, the couple other bills that weren't mentioned that I think well, are, are- Let me, uh, let's let's stay on 2011 for just one second. Yeah, um, sure. How do you model sort of the uptake so that you could sort of see, okay, well, this is what the hypothetical impact could be, mm-hmm. right? How do you mm-hmm. figure out like, well, how many people will end up you t- availing themselves of these new uh, loosening restrictions on zoning? Yeah, so that's a great question. And one that we oftentimes struggle with because we will do, say, a financial model to say what is feasible on a parcel of land, but that doesn't necessarily mean that it's going to convert into housing. Mm -hmm. And so it really depends on site-specific factors and also depends on the city itself, even with efforts made to streamline approvals through 2011 and and other pieces of legislation, uh, you still kind of have to have a good partner in the city that you're doing business in. And so it's, it's really a tough a question to answer because there are so many variables that you can't put into a model that can mm-hmm. derail housing or, or or maybe even make it more feasible. So so to answer your question, there, there's not really a great way to, to say we're definitely going to see X number of new homes as a result of this bill or policy change. Yeah. Um, Alfred, let's go to you. Favorite uh, piece of legislation or legislation you think can have the biggest impact? Sure. Thank you. So I think one of the biggest bills this year, in addition to 2011, is AB 2097. This bill is a parking reform bill. And what it says is that if you're near high quality public transit, whether that's a BART station or frequent bus line, you don't need to provide parking for housing, businesses, anything. And That actually works out really well with some of the other housing bills because it means that if a business has a parking lot that they're not fully using, they can build housing there. And if you're building a whole new apartment building, 
and you don't have to provide as much housing, that also saves a lot of money. Is currently, there are some cities where for even a one bedroom apartment, you might need two parking spaces, mm. which means that your garage is going to be larger than your apartment. And you can just imagine how that adds cost to housing. Yeah. So I would say AB 2097 is the other big bill to look at this year that's going to do a big effort for helping us meet our housing needs. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, David Garcia, there were three bills uh, related to ADUs, and I thought maybe we could take them all kind of in a package here. Um, SB 897, AB 916, and AB 2221. Um, For those following along with your uh, housing bill um, bingo card at home, we also do have at kqed.org slash forum. Uh, Alfred maintains a list of these things, and you can can take a look at that, the list of the pieces of legislation. But let's talk ADU legislation. Um, what do you think? How did it? What was this package of ADU bills doing this year? Yeah, so ADUs seem to be something that garners a lot of support in the legislature, as you have observed through a number of bills passed over several years. Um, but these bills really try to uh, tweak the way in which ADUs uh, are, are designed so that more of them can be built, essentially. So uh, right now, a city can impose. Uh, height limitations on ADUs and so on smaller lots that makes it really difficult for the geometry to make sense to build um, an ADU that, that maybe wouldn't work if it was one story but maybe if it was two story stories it would. Um, there are some uh, provisions that change other design requirements that cities impose that can limit like the size uh, or, or shape of the ADU which again on smaller lots can, can make it really tricky. Um, so I would say those, those are the, the main um, things that have uh, we've observed this year, uh, but also say, you know, ADUs have been a tremendous success story in California. So when we talk about, you know, what are the impacts that we've observed as a result of all of these ADU bills that have passed over the last several years, uh, ADUs make up almost 20% of new homes mm-hmm. built in California. That number was virtually zero when we fa- we passed our first major ADU bill in, in 2016. So um, I get a lot of questions about, you know, uh, have we seen any success uh, after years and years of housing legislation? And I always like to point to ADUs as, as a really great uh, bright spot in, in housing policy in California. Yeah. Alfred, let's go uh, back to you. Do you see major change that we that's sort of baked into the system now? but that we haven't actually seen sort of show up just because of the timelines of development. Like, do you see that we are on the path or, or are this, is this set of bills going to get us on the path or do we still need to do some major other legislative work? Sure. So I think we are definitely headed in the right direction that of course with construction, it, it takes a while, not just for the projects to get built, but also for the industry to ramp up. We've seen this with ADUs where when the first ADU bill was passed, ADUs were fairly rare, but now as the legislation has been used and other companies see, oh yes, I can get into the ADU business as well. It's really scaled up. And for example, with ADUs now, there are even some cities where the city has a list of pre-approved ADU plans where you can just go into the building department, pick out the ADU you want, and it's already approved. And so 
that can cut down the time from when somebody wants to build an ADU to when it's ready to move in just a few months. And I think often when we look at housing production bills, so much of the discussion is about the height of the buildings, the size of the buildings, but for encouraging housing production, I think one of the biggest things that California is doing right now is really simplifying that approvals process because time is money and also having the predictability of knowing when you'll get your building permit makes it easier to schedule workers, to schedule materials, and that saves a lot of money as well. Yeah. When we built an ADU, I could not believe how quickly the process went and you know, it's another unit of housing that our best friend lives in. You know, it's a, it's an amazing, it was an amazing process kind of hitting right as a lot of these bills were beginning to uh, to show up. Let's take our first call, uh, Sam in Pacifica with a different perspective. Welcome, Sam. Yeah, hi, how you doing? I live here in Pacifica and you know, I look at SB 9 and 10 and there's actually no guarantees in there for affordable housing. We seem to be caught in this Reagan type supply side economics. There, there's no there's no stipulation as to building um, uh, affordable or or not allowing ADUs or new housing under SB nine or ten um, to be short term rentals. And at, uh, anybody just has to look at the data and see that it's a fabricated housing crisis. You can see that over sixty percent of a lot of the sales and and where I am, but across the state, are either um, being sold to private equity investors or also people who are and keeping them empty and then also um having units for um for uh for airbnb and the like so this the way that we're going about it doesn't actually work you know what they need to be focusing on is redeveloping old strip malls and doing that sort of thing instead of saying oh you know if you have a backyard you're a villain if you don't do an adu unit those adu units turn into uh turn into airbnbs anyways thank you Hey, thanks, Sam. And luckily, AB 2011 is supposed to be focused on those commercial zones. So that's a that's partially addressed what you're talking about. Um, David Garcia, can you talk to me a little bit more about what we think the role of short-term rentals is? Um, it's kind of two different things that, that Sam was asking. One was short-term mm-hmm. rentals. The other was the sort of the role of private equity. Um, and I think there's a narrative that private equity leaves homes vacant, but the, the business that they're in is really about renting them out, though they are sometimes vacant, of course. Yeah, uh, there's a lot to unpack here. So um, first on the question of short-term rentals, I think there is a misperception that ADUs are created simply to be rented out on platforms such as Airbnb. The data that we have seen um, through ADU homeowner surveys done um, by my colleague, Karen Chappell, also at UC Berkeley, uh, finds that it's it's far less than 10% of the new ADUs built that are actually put on platforms like that. Moreover, there is actually a lot of good research that shows that even if someone creates an ADU with the intention of putting it uh, on a short-term rental site, um, many times over the course of a year or two, that Airbnb will turn into long-term housing because the owner either pays off the debt that they incurred to build the ADU and and they would prefer a more stable tenant or they just get tired of being a host. Um, So long story short, most ADUs are not being built as short-term rentals and the ones that are eventually have the opportunity to convert into uh, longer-term housing. So on the question of vacancies, um, you're, you're right. The data there shows that there's just not 
a ton of homes out there that are being held vacant. The vacancy rate in the Bay Area is at, at historic lows. And even the units that are vacant, there's a lot of noise in that data because a lot of it is units that are currently um, being rented out, but not actually rented. Yeah. They're being renovated or they're uninhabitable. So when yeah, we David, look at vacancy rates, it's not always, you know, that we have all these homes sitting vacant. Yeah. I mean, where did the, that come from? There's definitely, whenever we do a show on housing, we get a lot of questions about yeah. the number of vacancies. Is that just kind of like taking the vacancy number, which is small, and multiplying it by the number of housing units in the Bay, which is big, and then you end up getting this kind of big yeah. number of things that I are think- nom- nominally vacant? Yeah, I think that's exactly it, right? So if you take a, you know, two to three percent vacancy, which over the course of the entire housing stock of the Bay Area is is pretty small, but you put real numbers to it, it seems like we have all of these units that should have people living in them. But for all intents and purposes, once you dig into that data, that's not really the case. Um, That being said, you know, a lot of cities have pursued things like vacancy taxes to try and get Mm -hmm. anyone who, who is holding a, uh, a, a unit off of the market to actually put it on the market and raise funding for things like permanent supportive housing and, and whatnot. So I think that that's a, a fine way to go about dealing with that very narrow specific issue, but it certainly is not going to solve the housing crisis. Yeah. Um, Alfred, got an interesting uh, question for you. Pete writes, I'm an architect and know about numbers. The issue is not more housing, it is less expensive housing. If you build more units, they will cost more than the existing housing stock, so that will only drive up the average cost. The state has to stop making housing costs greater. They do that by requiring things like requiring a complete solar power system for every new housing unit, along with a variety of other mandates that ultimately owners and renters will have to pay for. Only subsidizing housing will work. How do you, I mean, you're also an architect. How how would you respond to that? Say things like solar, they're a pretty minor cost of the budget compared to things like the cost of the land. And that's really where the higher density helps save money by allowing more homes on the same amount of land. And I think with, but it's true, California does have very high housing costs. And part of it is related to our complicated approvals process, which means that almost every building is custom. Imagine if we were building cars where every car is custom made, they would be very unaffordable. And that's where some of the bills like 2011 are gonna be so impactful is because just like with any other product with mass production, you get cost savings and there will be much cheaper houses when we're building apartments and using the same plan over and over again because of the streamlined approvals Sure. We're talking about California housing laws passed in 2022. Earlier, we talked with Assemblymember Buffy Wicks. We're now talking with Alfred Tu, architect, housing activist, and a commissioner for uh, Berkeley Planning and Landmarks Commission, as well as a candidate for the AC Transit Board, and David Garcia, policy director at the Turner Center for Housing Innovation at UC Berkeley. I want to go back to the phones here. Uh, Jennifer in Berkeley has a question. Hello. Um, one of my questions is uh, you mentioned a law that would uh, allow housing on commercially zoned land. Would that also apply to manufacturing? Would we see a transfer of manufacturing land into housing? And as much as I really want housing, I know we're at a historic moment when there's quite a bit of onshoring because of historic mm-hmm. supply chain issues. Mm-hmm. Wow, Jennifer, really, really interesting question. Um, David Garcia? Yeah, so it's my understanding that 
there's like an active manufacturing use that would not be eligible for conversion under the set of uh, the pieces of legislation that that passed. I think this bill was really more uh, targeted towards properties that are underutilized right now from the retail commercial perspective. So things like um, vacant strip malls or underutilized office parks, uh, th things like that. And I think one of the, the, the core things uh, to remember here is we have just a massive amount of land that is dedicated specifically to retail and commercial. And a lot of that was done decades ago because cities, mm -hmm. uh, you know, they, they derive a significant portion of the revenue from things like sales tax. And uh, things like housing have traditionally been seen as um, kind of fiscal losers from a city budget perspective. We have more data that that is um, really not the case when you talk about an infill environment where the infrastructure already exists, and um, you know, and, and housing can can be built on a place where um, you know the commercial use that's existing is not actually generating the tax revenue that the city is counting on. So a lot of cities are really rethinking the. Um, the, the utility of having so much land reserved for retail and commercial when uh, retail preferences have shifted and now we have this kind of permanent um, work from home shift that has made some office environments less less tenable. Yeah. You know, before we uh, move away and kind of close out this uh, middle segment here, can you give us, David, like a one of the bills you think may be underrated in its importance? You know, I think uh, we've, we've talked a lot about 2011, but are there is there another bill in here that people should kind of keep their eye on? Yeah, absolutely. So I would say uh, Assembly Bill 2295 from Assemblymember Richard Bloom from Southern California. This essentially enables school districts to be able to build housing for teachers and their workforce on land that they own or control without having to go through a rezoning process with the city that that land is located in. We did some work with the Center for Cities and Schools and City Lab at UCLA and found that there's roughly 75,000 acres statewide that is well positioned to be uh, teacher housing uh, throughout the state. And so this bill is, I think, a really critical step in opening up a lot of land uh, that could be used for housing uh, teachers and, and critical staff, which, as we know, um, you know, they're really filling the bunch of housing cost burdens. We're talking about the California housing laws passed in 2022 with David Garcia of the Turner Center in Alfred II architect and housing activist who maintains an incredible list of these uh, housing developments. We'd love to hear from you. What housing programs and policies would you like to see more of in your backyard? Uh, you can give us a call. The number is 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, or KQED Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned for more right after the break. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. 
Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We're talking about the housing bills passed in 2022 by our state legislature and signed uh, into law by Governor Newsom. We're taking your calls and comments, of course, and we're also joined by David Garcia, the policy director at the Turner Center for Housing Innovation at UC Berkeley, and Alfred Tu, an architect, housing activist, and commissioner for the Berkeley Planning and Landmarks Commission and a candidate for the AC Transit Board. Um, I'm, you know, We're getting a lot of comments and, and calls that are about sort of making sure there's the adequate infrastructure for um, this housing. And I want to bring in Victoria in San Leandro. Welcome to the show, Victoria. Hi. Uh, I've, I've lived in the Bay Area my entire life, and I understand how hard housing is. It's been a struggle for my husband and myself. But when I talk to anybody in the Bay Area, part of the concern is the infrastructure. When we're being asked to conserve our water because of droughts, when our electrical grids are being turned off because of a heat wave or, you know, because the infrastructure there is crumbling and the weather is a little iffy that day. When I go to use BART for public transit and if I don't get there by 730, I don't have a parking space to even be able to get onto the train. It took me an hour and 15 minutes just to go from San Leandro to the first exit across the Bay Bridge today. So it's it's hard to imagine as we have more and more housing, how people are going to be able to move throughout the area. Yeah, thank, thanks so much for that, Victoria. You know, Alfred, you're uh, a candidate for AC Transit Board. So clearly you've been thinking a lot about these transit issues. You've been thinking about the system that we have for moving people around. Um, how would you answer, Victoria? Sure, thank you. I totally understand that concern. And what I would say is that these housing bills are written to focus on places where there won't be the, as much infrastructure intact. For example, a lot of the housing bills are focused on locations near public transit. And the idea is that people are going to be riding the bus to get to the BART or even walking to the BART station because they live right next door to it instead of having to drive. Because the status quo, if we're not building housing near transit, is that housing gets built in the outer suburbs where people are in their cars for hours and hours every day commuting. And on the issue of water and electricity, what I would say is that if you look at modern buildings, we have some of the strongest environmental building codes in California. And a modern apartment will use much less water, much less electricity than a house with a large lawn. So often when we are talking about housing, getting this new building near transit that's compact is actually saving us energy and saving us water. Yeah. Um, yeah. Oh, go ahead. Go ahead. Actually, David, let me, um, let me read one more comment and then you take this one because it's kind of a follow on to Judith writes, I am not a NIMBY. I want more housing and more affordable housing. The challenges I see with the new housing being built and proposed in Berkeley is the lack of parking. There are two multi-story apartment projects scheduled and being built on University Avenue, which do not require parking. Not all of us ride bicycles or motor scooters or motorcycles. Sadly, public transportation is not accessible or available on a reliable, convenient basis. One cannot get everywhere without a car. How do I get from Berkeley to visit my relatives in Marin County without a car? Whether we like it or not, there will continue to be a need for automobiles. So kind of in the in the same line. Um Go ahead, David. Sure. So on the 
uh, automobile fronts, I think the idea is not to always completely eliminate parking. I think there are instances where if a developer finds that the uh, folks who will be renting the units uh, are likely to not have a car, uh, then we should we should trust that they they know what they're doing there uh, because they they have a lot of a lot of money on the line. Um, I will also say that there is a lot of data that shows that we've really overbuilt parking to a significant degree. So in the instances where um, we have overbuilt parking over the last couple of decades, you have a lot of parking lots that sit half empty, if that. And uh, so we, we know for a fact that, especially today in an era where you can use your phone to call for a car rather than incur the expense of home ownership or car ownership, that a lot of people just don't own cars at the same rate that they used to. So again, not to say that uh, parking is going to be completely eliminated from all projects moving forward. I think that's, um, that, that is highly unlikely. And even in places where you've seen parking eliminated, a lot of times developers will still choose to provide parking on site. Um, to the broader question of just the infrastructure available uh, for, for, for new housing, I think we have to look at this um, at, a, at a higher level, because if we are not building enough housing in California, where we are a leader in, in, uh, in climate change uh, and, um, and, and environmental policies, then those folks are moving to other places where energy and water is even more scarce and, or coming from even less uh, clean sources. So places um, like Texas, Nevada, um, all of these other uh, states mm -hmm. that we have seen a huge outmigration towards. And so it's not as if if we don't build housing here, the people who would like to live in California just don't exist somehow. They have to live somewhere. So they're either going to a place where all of those resources are still going to be used, or they're overcrowding here in California, living in dangerous living conditions. So I think it's, it's important to realize that we're not just talking about, well, a unit of housing needs infrastructure, that, that we're talking about the people who have to live in that housing, and, and they will need to go somewhere. Yeah. Um, you know, there's a kind of big question on the table that Ben brings up. Uh, I see two big issues with this mad rush to build more housing. Firstly, any new housing built in California is still going to be out of reach for anybody who is experiencing homelessness. The idea that creating more inventory is going to help with the homelessness problem is just plain false. Secondly, are we blind to the fact that we're out of water in the state? Um, so we'll we kind of address that. Let's just, let's take just just this that like mm -hmm. I it is clearly true that like a house that costs a million dollars is out of reach for people who are experiencing homelessness. Mm -hmm. So what is the sort of theory of the case in building more uh, housing at at higher prices? And does it hold water that it would actually make things better at the at the bottom of the pay scale? Or does that do people with very low incomes need specific legislation to address what they need? Yeah, so I think it's a both and approach, right? So there needs to be, and there has been a very explicit focus on creating more permanent supportive housing, more deeply affordable housing. That's been apparent in the last few years in the budget and several pieces of legislation that have tried to streamline the creation of that kind of housing. Um, that being said, 90% uh, of homes in California are built by uh, private developers. They're not deed restricted. And so there's really not a mechanism in place to scale that up to the level needed where if we wanted to um, just, uh, solve our housing shortage just through, let's say, supportive housing or affordable housing, there's just there's just no, no mechanism for that. So that said, there is a pretty significant body of literature now that shows that building across the spectrum of housing uh, uh, types actually does improve affordability outcomes 
for the majority of folks throughout the market. Um, I know it's counterintuitive, but you know, think of it this way. If, if I am looking to live in one of the affluent areas of the Bay Area and uh, I can't afford those homes, well, I'll probably move over to the next neighborhood that's less expensive, maybe not quite as nice to me, the renter. And that creates kind of a cascading effect throughout the region and, and neighborhoods that, that will price people out eventually at the bottom, which is one of the reasons why we have such a significant uh, uh, homeless issue and, and folks who are, who are unhoused. Mm-hmm. So long story short, the creation of more housing at the broad level creates um, a, a dynamic where you don't have people competing against each other and competing with people with higher incomes for, um, for, for housing. Um, Carrie in Oakland has an ADU question. Welcome, Carrie. Hi there. Um, I We have a, a nice old home in an historic part of Oakland, and it's uh, encumbered by a homeowners association that mm. wouldn't allow us to build an ADU. Or we could build the ADU, yeah. but we wouldn't be allowed to rent it. Um, and you know, we've got a nice big yard and I've looked at this spot in the back saying this would be the perfect place to put something. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, there's, I, I just, I can't even imagine the amount of legal bills it would take me fighting this arcane, ancient, um, homeowners, <laughs> homeowners association. It's done a beautiful job protecting the old mm-hmm. homes. Um, but not allowing somebody to rent an ADU in their backyard um, is insane. And, and I don't know if any of these ADU regulations that have been passed um, can supersede or give you the strength to fight um, some of these CCNRs that these homeowners associations that, you know, they're just, they exist. When you buy the house, you agree right. to this stuff. Yeah. So, the covenants, um, conditions and restrictions, mm-hmm. right? That CCNRs. Yeah. Yeah. So, there was legislation passed a couple of years ago that uh, don't allow HOAs to uh, restrict the, the development or, or renting out of, of ADUs. And so I'm not sure um, it, when you, the, the caller explored building an ADU, but now that, that should not be allowed. Uh, there was an explicit effort in the legislature, um, knowing that there are a lot of HOAs out there who can restrict uh, the development of ADUs um, to, to peel back uh, that um uh, uh, that prohibition. So today, HOAs should not be allowed to do that per, per state law. Great. Right. And the Dang. bill you want to look into is called AB 3182 from last year. AB 3182, that is, on the ADUs. Um, Alfred, let's go a little bit big picture here with our last few few minutes. I mean, what are the things that kind of remain undone, the things that have been untouchable in Sacramento, even as things have really started to change up there? Yeah. So, bill that was, oh, sorry. Go ahead. Part of the, there was one other bill that was part of the big housing package that didn't quite make it through this year, and that was the social housing bill from assembly member Alex Lee in San Jose. So what social housing is, is it is mixed income housing that's developed by the public, that's available for people of any income to live in, and it's cross-subsidized. So if you make a lot of money, you pay more. And if you don't make any money, you pay very little. And the beauty of social housing is that you do get housing for all the income levels. And also you get ongoing money from the higher income tenants to 
subsidize the maintenance of the building. So you don't run into the problem that a lot of the 20th century housing projects ran into where there wasn't any money for maintenance. So the, the social housing bill, it was first introduced a couple of years ago. There was a more detailed version this year. It didn't make it all the way through, but Assemblymember Alex Lee has promised to bring it back next year. So hopefully that will be the next big piece of the puzzle that we work on. Yeah. Um, how about you, David Garcia? Do you have uh, something that's remains uh, un, unpassed, but that you feel like is a really good idea that would have a major impact? Yeah. So I actually think it, it should be an improvement on what passed last year. Um, you know, there, we had a lot of debate about Senate Bill 9 and Senate Bill 10, which uh, try to encourage the development of, of slightly larger projects than an ADU on single family parcels. Uh, but we've seen virtually no uptake of those of either of those laws, right? Mm-hmm. So in conversations I've had with planning departments, I think the highest number of SB9 applications that have been submitted is, is one in any city. Mm-hmm. Um, and so uh, I think because uh, creating what we call missing middle housing, things like duplexes, triplexes, really small apartment buildings, which used to be legal 60 years ago, um, those can be built at more affordable levels and be offered at more attainable prices. Uh, Senate Bill 9 and Senate Bill 10 are supposed to do that, but they're not working yet. And I think it's going to take a couple years of cleanup legislation to uh, make sure that cities are not imposing design requirements or other restrictions that limit the uptake of, of these bills um, for, for homeowners. So I, I, would, I would love to see the legislature work on that in the next year or two. Because it seems like in some similar extremely high-priced markets like Seattle, these have actually kind of taken off, right? Yeah. So other cities have um, have taken upon themselves to allow for more smaller scale development in, in lower density neighborhoods, places like Minneapolis, places like Portland. But they've run into similar issues where things like uh, setbacks, easements, things that are really in the weeds, uh, but really important to making these projects both financially feasible and just physically possible. Uh, those need to be thought through, um, not just at the state level, but cities who really would like to see this stuff take off need to think proactively about changing all of their land use regulations in single family neighborhoods, not just kind of doing the bare minimum that state legislation requires. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Let's take uh, one last call. Let's go to uh, Judy in Oakland. Welcome, Judy. Hi. Um, I have a couple of comments. Um, I've been a renter for a long time, and now we're on the other side of the fence. Um, I have several units that I am reticent to rent out because they make it so difficult for owners to get rid of a tenant if it's a problem tenant. And we also have an ADU that was um, recently finished, and we are also reticent to rent that out because it's on our property. And we've had a couple of trouble tenants um, that are living in subsidized housing but are renting from us and subleasing the units. So I think there, there's a big problem there when, um, when, when we uh, penalize tenants, I mean, uh, homeowners, and um, allow so much freedom for, for the tenants to do what they want. And uh, it, it makes it really hard for us to, or incentivize us to rent out hmm. all the units that we have right now that are empty. Yeah. Judy, thank you for that. I, mean, I think you're kind of pointing out there's a what seems to me like a pretty natural and quite structural tension between renter protections and the 
desirability of of renting by by landlords. Um, Alfred, do you want to do you want to take this one as a you know how, how do you feel like we're striking the right balance there on that tension? Sure. So I myself am a tenant, so I do appreciate many of the tenant protections that California provides. On the other hand, I do understand that for a small landlord that might only have one or two units, running into one bad tenant is a pretty big risk. And I think that's why it's important for the state laws to produce housing is to also recognize that not every homeowner wants to get into the landlord business. And that's why bills like SB9 from last year that allow additional units to be sold off separately to another homeowner, that's also really important because it provides a path to home ownership. And it also means that people can contribute to building housing for California without having to deal with the hassle of being a landlord. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, David Garcia, with our uh, last few seconds here, um, we all know that interest rates have gone way up, um, increasing the sort of cost of capital for people to buy homes. Do you think that's going to, what, what kind of effect is that going to have on our market here? Well, it's just going to make it more difficult for entry-level home buyers, first and foremost, um, and I think there's um, there's going to be hopefully um, some assistance coming from from the state. We've focused a lot on creating opportunities for home ownership that hopefully can compensate for the really high uh, interest rates um, that that we're experiencing relative to the last few years. Um, but this is one of the reasons why I think things like Senate Nine or or City led efforts like the city of Berkeley and Oakland are doing in their single family neighborhoods are so important to create just more home ownership opportunities more broadly in smaller scale uh, um, projects, townhomes, um, cottages, things like that, um, that can be more affordable. And so hopefully that interest rate um, hike can, can be more manageable. We've been talking about the California housing laws that passed in 2022. We've been joined by David Garcia, policy director at the Turner Center for Housing Innovation at UC Berkeley. Thanks so much for joining us, David. Yeah, thank you. It's been a pleasure. Also been joined by Alfred Tu, architect, housing activist, and commissioner for the Berkeley Planning and Landmarks Commission. Thanks so much, Alfred. Thank you. It's been great being here. And earlier we spoke with California State Assembly member Buffy Wicks. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned for another out Form Ahead with Mina Kim. Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio, the Germanicos Foundation, the Generosity Foundation, and the Heising Simons Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. 
Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country, we need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.